0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And what a week it's been here in Washington. Uh, we started things off with a shutdown.
1: All of this is entirely preventable if the House chooses to do what the Senate has already done. Uh, the House has uh, made its position uh, known very clearly. We believe that we should fund the government. And we think there ought to be basic fairness for all Americans under Obamacare.
0: And as the week went on, we found ourselves in the midst of a lockdown.
2: 2.18 uh, this afternoon, there was a vehicle in the vicinity of the White House that apparently attempted to pass a barricade.
3: Uh, Capitol Police the, uh, immediately ordered a lockdown of the House chamber and, uh, and called all these members in off of the balcony. And we were uh, into the shots house.
2: were potentially fired. They pursued the vehicle. The vehicle came... Uh, struck one of our vehicles here.
4: The lockdown has been lifted. Uh, school children in the area are being let out at their regular times. And the scene on the Capitol Hill appears to be returning to some state of normalcy,
0: although uh, this is certainly not normal on any given day. Those last sounds we heard were, of course, from Capitol Hill, where chaos erupted on Thursday amidst a burst of gunfire outside the Hart Senate office building. That gunfire marked yet another moment of crisis for a city still reeling from the Navy Yard shootings. A city now wondering when the government shutdown will end and the normalcy that's been so rare of late will finally return. So as we wrap up this roller coaster of a week, our theme for this edition of the show is ups and downs. And people who are especially feeling those ups and downs right about now are federal workers. We caught up with a few of them on the shutdown's very first day. They were taking advantage of happy hour at Graffiato, one of many restaurants offering free or discounted food and drinks to furloughed employees this week.
5: I think it's a bunch of nonsense. I think our government is embarrassing us as a nation.
4: You know, what can you do? We look at it like, okay, this is happening. You watch the news and just hope and anticipate it doesn't affect you, but it's affecting us all. You know, they're wasting our time. They're wasting our money. They're putting people out of work. And they're being a bunch of children.
6: The government is just playing games with our lives, and I think a lot of the politicians have forgotten what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck, as a lot of people do.
7: You know, if we're essential, non-essential, everyone's doing something important, so we all really want to get back to work and continue doing our jobs.
0: My husband and I are both federal employees, so it will affect us very much when we don't get our next paycheck.
7: The people on the Hill that are making the decisions, they're working, they're getting paid, and they're not even doing their job. They shouldn't be getting paid either.
0: Today, I did not do a whole lot. But probably tomorrow, I'll try to find a part-time job.
5: I was thinking today, I was like, oh my gosh, there's all this DC stuff that I haven't done. I can go to all these museums. No, I can't. i got
8: to pay my mortgage, you know. Like I, I, I
7: don't want to use savings. I don't want to have to put my mortgage on a credit card? I mean, that's ridiculous.
5: I think
0: the approval rating of Congress is going to go down, and then they're going to finally realize that somebody's going to need to budge. Somebody's going to need to back down a little bit and agree to something
4: they don't really want to do.
0: Those were federal workers speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. And as they and many other federal employees waited for some sort of breakthrough this week, city workers found themselves in a different situation altogether as they continued to report for duty. I recently met up with WAMU 88.5 district reporter Patrick Madden at the John A. Wilson building, home of D.C.'s city government, and he explained that Mayor Vincent Gray's decision to keep things running during a federal government shutdown isn't exactly business as usual.
8: That's right. This is surprising about everything that's happening with the shutdown right now. The district government, for all intents and purposes, is open and running. Now, in the past, that wasn't the case. Usually, a lot, most of the city services were shut down, parks, rec centers, libraries, trash pickup, and that's because the district is considered a a federal agency for budget purposes. The district has to have its spending approved by Congress, and so when the federal government shuts down, that means the district shuts down. But what happened in this case is that Mayor Gray decided that he was going to declare everyone essential, not just the police and firefighters that usually stay on during a shutdown, but everyone. And so that means that the city is open and running and what happens next it's still unclear.
0: Well how long realistically can the D.C. government keep the government open? I mean I I guess we're running on reserves right and that reserve fund can't last forever.
8: Right so to pay for everyone to work right now the city is tapping into its emergency and contingency cash funds. This is so-called rainy day funds. And so basically it would give us, I think, about two weeks to pay for everyone. And after that, they would have to sort of then move into the more traditional shutdown mode where just the essential, the the critical uh, employees are on duty.
0: Does this decision to stay open create any tension between the district government and Congress?
8: Well, there always is tension between the district and the federal government. And that tension is usually heightened when we have these situations like a federal government shutdown where the district really gets the short end of the stick, right? With The city, unlike any other city in the U.S., normally it can't do uh, trash pickup. It can't have its libraries open and parks. And so whenever these, these types of situations occur, there always is increased tension. Now, whether this move by Mayor Gray helps or hurts the district cause is up for debate. Republican Congressman Darrell Issa, now he's head of this committee that oversees D.C. He's pretty much the most important person for district affairs. It sounds like he is on board with what Mayor Gray is doing. And so that's, that is a very important step, and that could help further the district's cause for getting budget autonomy down the road. I mean, this could actually end up helping the district get more budget autonomy.
0: What about uh, voting rights, full voting rights in Congress?
8: I mean, that's a whole nother story. I think the way district voting rights activists view this as it's it sort of steps up the ladder if we can get more budget autonomy then the next step may be having the district's delegate in congress have more power in congress and then just slowly getting more more rights more autonomy so that eventually we can one day have a vote in congress
0: so we've been talking about this this reserve fund that the district has been running on um is there anything else in particular the city was planning to use that money for
8: well like i said this is the city's rainy day fund it is it is there for emergencies and i believe it's up to a billion dollars and it serves a very important purpose for wall street bond rating sort of showing that the city has a lot of fiscal stability but as the mayor and others will point out this this is pretty much an emergency for the city when it can't provide city services like it normally can so that's what it's there for and then i guess the question is will the city be reimbursed for paying all of these workers and that that's a big question that it, it and the answer isn't clear yet
0: Politically speaking, Patrick, how do you expect Mayor Gray and the council to look coming out of this crisis? I mean, looking at the public and how the public is viewing all of this, is there a sense that most members of the public approve of the decision being made or are there concerns about the decision to declare the entire city government essential?
8: I mean, I think this is a big win for the city and for the mayor and for the council because it really showed, one, that they sort of stood up to Congress. They stood up for the district and said, we're not going to be treated like any other federal agency, we are a city. We are spending our own locally uh, raised tax dollars to provide services to our residents. So in that case, I think it is a big win. Yes, there are some people who who will point out that, yeah, maybe uh, politically speaking, you're right. You know, the city should have every, everyone working. But legally speaking, you know, that it's a pretty clear definition that only critical services. So there are folks who say this wasn't a bright move. But I think, all in all, this was a, a big victory for, for the mayor, Uh, for Congressman Norton and for the council.
0: District reporter Patrick Madden, thank you so much for joining me today.
8: Thank you so much.
1: One, two, three, four... He's in
2: the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement, think about the government. The man in the trench coat, badge got laid off. Says he's got a bad call, wants to get it paid
1: off. Look out, kid, it's some you did. dead. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway. Looking for a new friend. The man in the cool skin cap is
2: in the big band, wants $11 bills.
0: The federal government shutdown is definitely having a ripple effect throughout the nation. Take, for instance, Head Start, the early childhood education program started in 1965 to help low-income families. Head Start normally provides more than one million children with structured education, play, healthy food, and free medical care. Now, mind you, the shutdown isn't affecting all Head Start classes, but the program is still reeling from our last budget standoff, which resulted in the broad spending cuts known as sequestration. The sequester delivered the worst blow Head Start has ever felt, a more than $400 million cut, which means 57,000 fewer children are able to enroll in Head Start programs across the country. And more than 18,000 staff salaries are being reduced or eliminated entirely. Emily Berman brings us this story on how these cuts are playing
4: out around our region. Thank you, Congressman Miller. This week, Head Start supporters rallied in front of the U.S. Capitol. They came from all across the country and all with the same problem. Head Start has more kids than ever in need of their services, they say, and there's less money to make those programs happen. One of the protesters is Alonzo Hooks, a single dad in D.C.
2: With all Head Start, I basically wouldn't be able to work, so I actually need the Head Start, and it helps the, uh, the kids to learn.
4: Senator Patty Murray from Washington State used to be a preschool teacher, Now she's chair of the Senate Budget Committee.
3: Head Start has been pulled into this debate that's a budget debate, but really it's a debate about our values.
4: Every dollar spent on early childhood development, Murray says, is an investment in the child's future.
3: And when you cut that investment, you may make that budget look a little bit better in the short run, but you are doing lasting damage to our children and to the long-term competitiveness of our country.
4: The Department of Health and Human Services has estimated how many kids would be cut from Head Start in each state. And in our area, the numbers were spot on. In D.C., they estimated 97 fewer slots for children. In Maryland, 462 fewer. And in Virginia, 1,189. And when you think about the fact that a million kids are enrolled in Head Start, these numbers can seem small. But not once you go into one of these classes and realize that all these kids, all 18 of them, may not have had the chance to be here.
3: Everybody have their coats on. Yeah. So are you taken care of? Yeah. So now
4: you can do what? Help a, help a friend. Tammy Mann okay. is the executive director of the Campania Center, which operates all of the two dozen Head Start classrooms in Alexandria, Virginia, We're in one of the Head Start classrooms in the back of T.C. Williams High School. To deal with the sequestration cuts, Mann was planning to cut one entire classroom. But with a look of relief, she explains that in the end, she didn't need to. Alexandria stepped up to replace the exact amount cut from federal grants.
5: One of the wonderful things about Alexandria is members of city council, um, individuals that are a part of the um, Department of Human Services, they understand and they get the importance of early investing.
4: This year is covered, but Mann says she has no idea what could happen next year.
5: It creates certainly a state of uncertainty that's not good. It's not good for the community. It's not good for the families.
4: In a similar move, earlier this fall, Fairfax County allocated money from the county's Sequestration Reserve Fund to cover the cuts to Head Start. Meanwhile, across the Potomac, Maryland is one of about 20 states addressing these cuts at a state level. Governor Martin O'Malley approved $4.1 million for Head Start this year, which makes up for 80 percent of the federal cuts to programs throughout Maryland.
6: We are being lauded by many other states.
4: Linda Zhang oversees Head Start for the Maryland Department of Education.
9: I receive emails every day from my colleagues around the country saying, I wish we could have gotten our legislature to do the same thing. I think Maryland is really leading the pack in that area.
4: All the programs in Maryland still had to make cuts, she says, but far fewer than they originally thought. And as is the case in Virginia, there's still no telling what will happen next year. I'm Emily Berman. Did you or someone in your
0: family attend Head Start? What do you think of the program? You can reach us at metro at WAMU.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU metro. Time for a break now, but when we get back, love in an elevator. Or at least a whole lot of hits on YouTube. We
1: are going to have an opportunity to ride a very unique elevator. That's right, this thing,
0: this beautiful Otis elevator. And going up, up, and away with an instructor of aerobatics.
6: I think it's in every pilot's blood to be a pilot. They're going to do everything and anything to go flying.
0: That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and
5: employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Our theme in this week of rough-and-tumble politicking is ups and downs. But we're going to take a break from the shutdown now to meet a woman whose job takes her up and down and upside down every single day. Marianne Buckley is a flight instructor, one who specializes in a type of flight not a lot of people have the um, stomach for or the skills She's an aerobatics pilot, one of just a few women in the country who can claim that title. Jacob Fenston headed out to Potomac Airfield, south of Washington, to see what it takes to master this unusual skill set. I'm not exactly afraid
10: of flying, but it gives me pause when Mary Ann Buckley says this.
6: If we do need to jump... This is your ripcord right here.
10: I'm strapped into the back of a tiny two-seater airplane. It's specially designed to withstand the stress and strain of doing acrobatic loops and twists in the air.
6: I'll uh, unlatch the door. It's easier for me to jump out first, and then you jump and just hold your your body out straight
10: it's just in case she says we probably won't need to jump out of the plane mid-flight
6: actually it's, it's not dangerous if you know what you're doing
10: and buckley does know what she's doing she's been teaching for about 20 years
6: it just takes practice
10: before we take off she does a walk around checking all the moving parts on the plane
6: alternator belt looks good prop you want to make sure you don't have any nicks on it looks good
10: so up we go for my first aerobatics lesson
6: on prop all right we're ready Okay, here we go.
10: We're taking off from Potomac Airfield, just south of the district line in Prince George's County. We slowly climb above the trees and subdivisions, and the world shrinks and flattens out. To the north, the brick and marble of Washington, D.C. is just a blip surrounded by trees and water. In the distance, the blue silhouette of the Appalachian Mountains. Once we level out, she asks if I want to fly. I take the controls and cautiously bank to the left, then back to the right. Buckley says when she's flying a plane, it's like being a bird, and doing aerobatics, it's like a bird dancing. The first trick she shows me is a loop. It's pretty much what it sounds like. A
6: uh, circle up in the sky.
10: First, you dip the nose of the plane, then accelerate and pull up. Suddenly, the atmosphere is pushing on my body. The horizon is rotating. Then it disappears and reappears in the wrong place. Next, we do a roll.
6: I guess people know what a roll
10: is. Then an immelman.
6: A half a loop and a roll at the top.
10: Next, a hammerhead.
6: You go straight up and then one wing goes over the other and you're coming straight de- back down.
10: And finally, a Cuban eight.
6: Which looks like an eight if you're looking at it from the side.
10: Buckley points to the little gauge on the dash of the plane. During that last maneuver, we experienced a little over three Gs, That's three times the force of gravity. I'm feeling lightheaded and queasy. Buckley says that's not unusual. She felt that way when she first tried doing aerobatics.
6: I had never been upside down before. The G's took me by surprise, uh, the G-forces.
10: She had to lie down and sleep off the nausea, but she was hooked.
6: I want to be one of the few people who can actually turn an airplane upside down and be comfortable doing it
10: buckley is one of even fewer women doing aerobatics she says of the hundreds of students she's taught over the years just a handful have been female
6: i fell in love with just flying upside down that was my favorite part
10: Alyssa miller is one of those students she started doing aerobatics after years of flying small planes
6: my dad is a pilot i think my first flight was when i was two
10: but when she started taking flight lessons there weren't many other women
6: My flight instructors were all guys. I had one female instructor, and then it wasn't until I started flying with Marianne that I had uh, another female instructor that I would work with.
10: Only 6% of pilots in the United States are women.
6: They don't necessarily see aviation as an outlet them as an opportunity for a
7: job or a hobby
10: it's partly just that there aren't a lot of role models other women flying planes but miller would like to see that change in fact she started teaching recently and her first three students have been women back in the plane with buckley we're heading down to solid ground and my stomach is settling but i'm still dripping cold sweat flying aerobatics isn't for the faint of heart or the faint of cash Getting a private pilot's license can cost thousands of dollars in lessons. And mastering the tricks, especially if you want to compete, can take hours a day.
6: I think it's in every pilot's blood to be a pilot. They're going to do everything and anything to go flying. And that that was me. It didn't matter how much it cost.
10: She saved up money for flight classes after college while working on Capitol Hill. And now she's able to make a living doing what she loves, teaching others to dance across the sky.
6: Case of
10: aerobatics. I survived. I'm Jacob Fenston.
0: Do you want to know what it feels like to fly upside down? Well, we've got a video of Jacob's trip on our website, MetroConnection.org.
3: Time has come for you to fly away. You just breathe on in then breathe on out and you'll be on your way. You are higher now, feeling
0: lighter
6: now, so much joy. You just have to go.
0: Our next story has far fewer flips and spins, but it still falls within the realm of ups and downs. Andrew Reems has a rather distinctive hobby. He records videos of himself touring elevators. Everything from modern elevators to historic elevators to mundane freight elevators rarely seen by the public. Reams has uploaded more than a thousand tours on YouTube under his username Diesel Ducey.
1: <laughs> Tell me when you're ready. We are in the basement of the Alameda, the Intercontinental Hotel. It used to be the Alameda Plaza.
0: Do you know what this is? The Skylift. And as of this week, he has 10,000 subscribers and more than 40 million views. Reams took Metro Connection's Steven Yenzer on a tour of some of D.C.'s most interesting elevators. They met up on the National Mall. Andrew Reams has loved
7: elevators for as long as he can remember.
0: Uh, Do you want to hear how I first got into elevators?
1: (laughs) I'll tell you about my first elevator ride.
7: (laughs) He was three years old at the mall with his mom.
1: I was like, wow, what's that? And she's like, that's the elevator. She's like, would you like to push the button? She picks me up. I push the button. This wall opens, which the doors open, and then here's this little white room. I'm like, that looks scary. I was like, she's like, well, it's magic. It's going to take us downstairs. I was like, okay, we'll try that. She's like, press the button that says one. I press the button, doors close. Down it goes, opens back up. I'm like, that was fun. I would do
7: that again. Andrew has been enchanted ever since. Although he says the ride hasn't always been a smooth one.
1: There was actually a time where I would there's two years of my life where I wouldn't ride an elevator. I got stuck in one when I was a kid.
7: He was only stuck for a few minutes, but Andrew says that terrifying experience led him to learn more about how elevators work.
1: Basically, when I became afraid of elevators, how I conquered the fear, I learned about them. I did extensive, extensive research back in the late 80s. That's why I know more about the older elevators than these modern, newfangled contraptions.
7: (laughs) Andrew also has a high-functioning form of autism called Asperger's syndrome. One of the common traits of Asperger's is an intense focus on particular topics. For Andrew, those topics are lighting fixtures, locks, and, of course, elevators. He says that many of his fellow elevator enthusiasts are also autistic, and many of them are kids in search of a community.
1: A lot of people, like me... Never had any friends in school. We got picked on. I was called retarded Reemzoid. Did you take your control pills? Stuff like that. So I was very unhappy, and I resorted to my elevator obsession as a way to vent. It would relax me. I'd go to my dad's law, my dad's school, right up and down the elevator. That That was what I loved doing, and it was one thing that I could find happiness in. And basically these kids, I guess... It's some, the, the reason the community, because they're bonding with other kids. They're going through what they're going through, so you form a camaraderie.
7: That camaraderie has led to a surprisingly large online community. There are hundreds of active elevator reviewers on YouTube, but Andrew is the most prolific by far, with nearly 1,500 videos and tens of millions of views. The popularity of his Diesel Ducey channel has led to a YouTube advertising partnership, that he says earns him more than his first full-time job did at McDonald's. Up the floor.
1: It's got a little bit of a squeeze in here, but that's all right.
7: Our first stop is the Smithsonian Castle to ride a couple of staff elevators that are about 50 years old. These things are tiny, with antique buttons and brass gates. Once we reach the bottom floor, Andrew steps out and goes into tour mode.
1: We are going to have an opportunity to ride a very unique elevator. That's right, this thing, this beautiful Otis elevator.
7: We leave the castle, although not before Andrew finds two more elevators to ride, and trek across the mall to the National Museum of American History. We'd heard it has the largest freight elevator in the Smithsonian system, and we are not disappointed.
1: you are going to ride the Otis elevator, the freight elevator. Wait don't see how big this thing is.
7: It's massive. Picture your living room, except it moves up and down.
1: This thing is so huge I can't get it in the full frame. It's big enough for you to fit a small truck inside of it. You have monitor TR fixtures. This used to have the Otis black buttons. Y'all coming along? <laughs> now we're going to close the door.
7: The museum has used this elevator to move a Revolutionary War gunship, a 19th century fire engine, and Julia Child's kitchen.
1: That is a behemoth of a door.
7: Huge. After four hours and six elevators, I am ready to have a seat. But Andrew is already planning his next video. He says he's heading back to the American History Museum to get some more footage and thinks he might stop by the National Gallery of Art. He's heard good things about its elevators. It's tempting, but I think I'm ready to stay on the ground floor for a while. I'm Stephen Yenzer.
0: you can check out Andrew Reems tour of an elevator he and Stephen visited at the museum on our website, MetroConnection.org. You can't go
11: anymore There's a fire
0: Something that's seen its share of ups and downs these past few years is the saga of D.C.'s streetcars. We've been hearing about the new streetcars coming to D.C.'s H street benning Road corridor for a while now. And officials say that streetcar line will permanently transform neighborhoods for the better. But here's the thing. When that streetcar will open is still unclear. Not even the people building the line can answer that question. And that is the subject of our regular transportation segment from A to B. <laughs> So why is it so hard to say when the streetcars will finally carry their first passengers? Well, transportation reporter Martin DeCaro donned a hard hat and headed to H Street to find out.
9: The H Street-Benning Road corridor will never look or sound the same.
2: We're at the corner of H Street and 3rd Street Northeast.
9: But you wouldn't recognize it. The roadway is dug up. Dust floats through the air as bulldozers rumble across the roadbed. Construction workers assemble streetcar tracks underneath tall black poles that'll carry overhead power lines. It's all coming together under the supervision of Thomas McFall, who works for the general contractor. The finished product looks like two parallel rails embedded in asphalt, if only the project were that easy.
2: All the work is, is down below those two pieces of steel. You know, we had to relocate a lot of a lot of existing utilities so that they were out from underneath the tracks. This road is is decades old, and the utilities that are under this roadway are just spaghetti. You know, it's just a network of conduits, a network of water lines, gas lines. So did you
9: want to cross over or? Yeah. Okay. As I make my way into the construction zone in my hard hat and fluorescent safety vest, I can picture the streetcars quietly whirring from stop to stop once the work is all done. But the view also shows how difficult the project is in a dense commercial corridor. For starters, McFall's crew had to rearrange the traffic patterns to make way for the excavation work.
2: This is our second of three phases that we're working in right now. Our first phase, we had traffic on that side while we constructed the tracks through the intersection. We've switched traffic. Now we're doing a mirror image of what we did on the north side, on the south side of the road. Installing a new track, reconstructing the roadway, um, all of the controls for the train system, all of the signalization work that needs to go in and then just rerouting of, of utilities.
9: Thomas Perry is the Streetcar Programs Manager at the District Department of Transportation. He describes the whole operation as a coordination project.
2: Throughout the 2.4 miles, we have several entities, whether it's the community, developers that are building within the corridor, the various utilities, whether it's Pepco, or Washington Gas, Verizon, and so on. We have to coordinate all of our efforts basically so we can get this job done.
9: When construction wraps up this fall, the next phase of the project begins, testing D.C.'s small fleet of shiny new red and gray streetcars. It's the biggest variable that makes estimating a start date so difficult.
2: So each step along the way, car one is certified, car two is certified, and then car three is certified, as well as the driver's and also the infrastructure within the system is all certified.
9: Also, streetcar operators will have to learn how to maneuver down a fixed track with car and truck traffic sharing the same lane. Then from there, we can move to the
2: next step, which is actually ridership.
9: That probably won't happen until early next year, but before streetcars pick up their first passengers in a half-century in Washington, DDOT has a lot of work to do with business owners on 8th Street and Benning Road. Delivery trucks will no longer be able to park curbside, I asked Enoch Adoui, the manager of a pharmacy at h and where his deliveries may park instead.
11: Well, we don't know. Actually, we don't know. We're just waiting to see whether it's going to be a blessing or it's going to be something else.
9: DDOT has to deal with residents' concerns, too. The streetcar's eastern end will run through a historically black neighborhood that, at first, was wary of the district's plans.
4: Initially, there was a lot of suspicion, and rightly so. This is a big deal. It's disruptive. It's inconvenient.
9: Don Edwards is a resident who's worked as a consultant on the project, a link between the neighborhoods and the government. We've spoken a lot where DDOT's building a car barn to house the streetcars. It's surrounded by two symbols of African-American progress, Spingarn High School and Langston Golf Course, one of the first courses in D.C. to allow black golfers.
4: And the project has tried to be very respectful of that history while also trying to move forwards because in the same way that these institutions were progress, they represent progress in their generation, that's what this project is supposed to do. Edwards
9: asks, does change always have to equal loss? That question will remain relevant if the changes DDOT expects to take hold in this corridor come about in one of the fastest gentrifying cities in the country. I'm Martin DeCaro.
0: You can see a video of Martin's visit to the site of that forthcoming streetcar line on our website, MetroConnection.org. And if you live down in the H Street, bedding Road area, how do you think the streetcar line will affect the neighborhood? Send us a note. Our email address is Metro at WAMU.org. After the break... The upshots and lowdowns of D.C.'s ongoing height limit debate.
5: We have three paths forward. We either become a city that only the very wealthy can live in. We are a city where we use less than 10 percent of the land to judiciously place some taller buildings. Or we change the character of a lot of our neighborhoods.
0: Plus the highs and lows of tree health in Maryland and a selection of your letters. Stay with us. It's coming up on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're devoting our show to ups and downs. From the roller coaster ride of the government shutdown in D.C., to the often dizzying ups and downs of life as an aerobatics instructor in Maryland. Now we'll look at an issue that has people across the district looking up toward the sky, or toward the skyline, rather.
5: We were not unlike most other cities at the end of the 19th century when building technology largely didn't allow you to have a building much more than 10 or so stories. It was relatively rare.
0: Because after all, says Harriet Tregoning, who directs D.C.'s Office of Planning, back
5: then we didn't have, you know, buildings with sprinklers. We didn't necessarily have fireproof construction materials. We certainly didn't have the ability that we have now to fight fires in taller buildings.
0: So many big cities wound up enacting height limit laws, including, of course, Washington, D.C.
5: Our building heights are based on an urban design principle that scales the height of the building to the width of the street. That ratio is one to one on residential streets. By Congress it was limited to the width of the street plus 20 feet for commercial buildings. But that relationship was truncated by the cap of 130 feet for fire suppression reasons.
0: Now most cities have long since ditched those height limits, but not Washington. Back in November, Congress asked the National Capital Planning Commission and the city to explore revisions to the 1910 Height of Buildings Act. Tregoning's office recently released its recommendations, which involved changing height limits inside what's known as the L'Enfant City.
5: It's the part of the city that was originally laid out by Pierre L'Enfant. And then that city on the north is bounded by what used to be called Boundary Street, which is now Florida Avenue. Um, So it's a relatively small area, and it's where today you find most of the federal monuments and most of the apparatus of the federal government.
0: I met with Tregoning in a portion of the L'Enfant City, DuPont Circle, not far actually from the site where architect Frank Lloyd Wright once proposed a massive skyscraper called Crystal Heights or Crystal City. Anyway, she began by explaining the positive effects the original height restrictions have had on Washington.
5: What? that 1899 and then 1910 high deck did for us is something that we really actually love about our city. It is very pedestrian scaled. It means a lot of air. It means a lot of light. It means an openness. So you can always see the sky, but it also means a sense of enclosure. You know, the buildings kind of form an outdoor room with the street. So it's, it's something absolutely to love. So What we're proposing now in the L'Enfant City is you could have buildings as high as 200 feet. For many of our streets, there wouldn't be any change at all because the street is narrow and the building height already represents that ratio that we're trying to achieve. But for some other streets, you would be able to potentially have more height.
0: But given how much cities change and how much our city has changed, how can you really reconcile the needs back in 1910 with the needs we have in 2013 in this growing town?
5: Well, I mean, that's exactly the point and why I think Congressman Issa asked us to consider whether or not the Hyda Buildings Act continued to serve the city well looking into the future. It certainly has served the city well over the last 100 years, but more than 50 of those years were years when we were a shrinking city, where we lost hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, middle-class households fled the city over the last four decades. Uh, So much so that uh, we never found it necessary as a city to even measure the capacity we had left to grow because we were never growing since the time we had home rule. So fast forward to today, and we're growing at a pretty torrid pace. In the time between uh, the last census, which was the 2010 census, was the first time we had had a real increase in population since World War II so it 'd been a really a long time and and since the two thousand and ten census uh, you know we 've had a pretty toward pace of growth. The next year was two point seven percent a year the year after that was two point one percent so if we looked at how we might grow in the future, our pace of growth it 's clear that we don 't have another hundred years worth of capacity under our current height limits unless we wanted to do something that our citizens have said they weren't interested in, which is changing the character of our residential neighborhoods. You know, we really cherish our row house neighborhoods, our single family neighborhoods. So our own comprehensive plan only designates about 10% of the land area for the city uh, as high density or medium density development. And it's mostly places that are along major commercial corridors and near metro. So, you know, if we are going to use that 10% of the land to really try to accommodate our future growth, that means we have to go up. you know, we agree that outside the L'Enfant City where the federal interests are much more diffuse and where there would remain a lot of federal control, even federal veto power, over our plans to raise heights in different parts of the city, we think that that's sufficient to basically allow us to eliminate federal height limits outside the L'Enfant City. It would almost double the capacity we have left in uh, in the L'Enfant City to accommodate future growth. So Harriet, what happens if we don't? change the height limits if we just don't do this? Well, that's a good question. It's absolutely true that this is not the only way to accommodate future growth in the city and that there are other places where growth could go, but it does mean affecting the character of other neighborhoods, of largely residential neighborhoods. So we have three paths forward. We either become a city that only the very wealthy can live in, where the demand is extremely high and prices for housing are, are so exorbitant, that not only moderate-income families can't live here, but even middle-income families would have to be gone with their children. Or we are a city where we use less than 10% of the land to judiciously place some taller buildings uh, and accommodate that growth and development. Or we change the character of a lot of our neighborhoods. Paris is a place that's often thrown up uh, as a, you know, why can't we be more like Paris? Well, Paris took their residential neighborhoods and, and made them essentially block after block of small apartment buildings. And if we were to do that in our neighborhoods, we could accommodate easily 100 years worth of residential growth, but they would be very different neighborhoods.
0: Harriet Trigoning is the director of DC's Office of Planning. For a link to the office's proposed recommendations on the Height of Buildings Act, visit our website, metroconnection.org. <laughs> We'll turn now to the environment and a project aimed at understanding the ups and downs faced by trees over a 100 years. The experiment is taking place on land owned by the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center in Edgewater, Maryland. The project is called Biodiversitary. And environment reporter Jonathan Wilson met with the scientists who designed the project before the government shutdown, of course, and brings us this story.
3: John Parker knows a lot about biodiversity. He's been studying it for about 20 years, but never like this.
11: Yeah, this is the biggest thing that we've ever done by far. Uh, I think about five people plus 100 volunteers took six weeks in the spring working almost every single day to put everything
3: out here. Parker is a senior scientist at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, and he's standing at the end of one of the six fields that make up the Biodiversity Experiment. Parker says the idea for biodiversity is connected to the long-standing concern about the effects of agricultural runoff polluting the bay.
11: One of the ways in which we've sort of tried to restore the Chesapeake Bay as a whole here in Maryland is to plant more uh, forest in the critical zone bordering Chesapeake Bay and important tributaries. And so what we decided to do is not just restore forest next to Chesapeake Bay, but we decided to to make an experiment out of
3: it. The experiment involves 32 acres of land that's been planted only with corn for the past 35 years. The corn is now gone, and in its place, Parker and his volunteers planted one tree every eight feet. That's more than 18,000 seedlings, with more planned in years to come. Diversity is the point, and there are 16 different species in the ground here. But exactly where they're planted is also important. Parker and his colleagues want to find out if and exactly how biodiversity helps forests survive. And the best way to test that is to set up artificial communities that
11: have either low diversity, a single species. These tall trees poking their heads up right here are all sycamore trees. But then over to
3: my right, we have a plot that's got actually four different species in it. Parker says if a disease or predator attacks a particular type of tree, it makes sense that a plot holding that one species could get wiped out whereas a plot with multiple species would fare better. But one hypothesis is that having greater diversity helps even those species under attack. Parker calls this an associational resistance effect. You have
11: something that's fairly palatable to deer. Let's just say red maples are eaten a lot by deer. It's one of their preferred foods. So if you put a bunch of red maples out in a patch with just red maples, deer find it. They're going to eat just about everything there.
3: But put red maple in a patch with things deer don't like to eat, Parker says.
11: Let's just say sycamore and um, ironwood and beech. They actually eat the red maple a little bit less because it's a little less profitable to stay in that patch. So the red maples do a little bit better when they're surrounded by things that are unpreferred or unpalatable to deer.
3: Right now, the seedlings are surrounded by mesh cages to make it harder for deer to get to them. But Parker says his team has a nastier weapon at its disposal, cow blood spray, which is just as gross as it sounds.
11: The theory is that a deer will come up and, and smell the cow blood and think something else has been killed here. This is a pretty dangerous environment. I need to get out. And so it puts the fear of death into them to come in and smell a tree covered in cow blood. That's interesting. It does to us as well. It's pretty terrible stuff.
3: On pleasantries like that one aside, Parker's colleague Susan Cook Patton says once the researchers shepherd the fields beyond the early years, she's looking forward to studying how trees take carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, out of the atmosphere in forests of different diversity levels.
4: You know, we're interested in how do we get some of this carbon dioxide out of the air. And, you know, it'd be great if there were things out there that could just suck carbon dioxide out of the air, right, and capture it. And we have those things already, right? They're called trees. And an interesting question is if you've got these diverse mixtures of trees and they grow more vigorously... Are they then better at taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? So that's one really important question I think that will come out of this.
3: cook Patton says there are only a handful of these types of experiments, known as tree diversity manipulations, going on across the world, and only a few published scientific papers about them. The team also says biodiversity is the largest such experiment in North America. And while at this early stage they don't have much data, the potential for studying everything from nutrient retention in soil to stormwater runoff from these fields into the bay is almost endless as the project moves forward. Parker and Cook Patton say while data will tell an important story, they're most looking forward to simply walking through these fields and looking at these forest communities as they reach maturity in 10 or 15 years.
11: As you're walking through just a sycamore monoculture, are there more birds, fewer birds? Is the soil different? Does it have just a different feel than a polyculture? And then we can go through and quantify those differences later. And that, that, from a scientific perspective, that's really the, the end goal of this experiment. Does a diverse system function any differently than a
3: less diverse system. The scientists, make that a few generations of scientists, should have at least a century to answer that question. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
0: We have more on biodiversity and the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center on our website,
8: metroconnection.org. When we cut down forests, we decrease biodiversity. That's short for biological diversity, the variety of life on Earth. From the smallest bacterium to the largest trees, all the different ecosystems, species, and genes. I love, I love biodiversity.
0: We say goodbye today. We're going to turn the microphone over to you and read from your letters and messages. On last week's Coming of Age show, Emily Berman brought us a story about Our Whole Lives, or OWL, a sex education program started by the Unitarian Universalist Church. Lisa Moore heard the story and shared this message on our website, MetroConnection.org. Both my daughters went through the OWL program, and I am so grateful that they had the experience. We spoke frankly to them at home, but there is no substitute for hearing about the whole range of issues surrounding sexuality from trusted teachers in a caring environment with a group of peers. Making human sexuality real and honest is one of the best gifts we can give our children. Also on our coming-of-age show, Stephen Yenzer told us about Tacoma Park's decision to lower the city's voting age to 16. That story prompted this email from Catherine Tunis. Your story completely omitted the effort within Tacoma Park to have the proposal to allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote be decided by the voters. The last time the city expanded voting rights 20 years ago, that proposal was put on the ballot for the voters to decide. But this time, despite the public outcry from current voters, council has determined that they should be the ones to decide. So it doesn't seem that this is really an expansion of voting rights, but an edict from the city council. And finally, our coming-of-age show also featured a profile of Kathleen Williams, a Maryland woman who's returning to her artistic roots at the age of 101. Teresa Grayna was inspired to share this comment on our website. Kathleen Williams was one of the first people I met when I came to Washington in 1964. We were both in a ceramics class at the Corcoran. She was vivacious, creative, and had a wonderful sense of humor. She invited the class to her beautiful home in Chevy Chase, which had a swimming pool she shared with a neighbor. Her garden then, as now, was wonderful, filled with interesting works of art she created. Through the years we have met and I have seen her wonderful artwork and garden, she is a Washington treasure. And Jonathan D chimed in to say thank you for featuring this woman we need to hear more from our wise elders maybe we can bring some sanity back to this crazy crazy world if you have a message you'd like to share with us send us an email our address is Metro at wamu.org. or find us on Twitter our handle is at Wamu Metro a message.
7: Message
0: to you, and that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jacob Fenston, Martin DeCaro, Jonathan Wilson, and Stephen Yenzer. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connections managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show today, no worries. You can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll delve even deeper into the government shutdown and how it's affecting our local communities. We'll hear how Metro is faring with far fewer commuters, and we'll find out what Washingtonians are doing to keep up federal worker morale. Plus, we'll learn how families are coping as they ponder just how long they'll have to live without a paycheck. And we'd like to hear your story suggestions for next week's program. So if you're feeling the effects of the shutdown, please, please, please get in touch with us. Our email address is metro at WAMU.org, or you can find us on Facebook. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.